You're listening to Pullin' Weeds, the official podcast of the Carolina's Golf Course Superintendents Association. The views and opinions expressed in this show are those of the people appearing on the show and not of the Carolina's Golf Course Superintendents Association or the sponsors. Enjoy the show. Wow. Welcome in, everybody. I think this is season five of Pullin' Weeds. And we are here with a very distinguished guest today. And as we do every year, we're going to start with our president. So I'd like to welcome in Mr. Pete Gurdon. Well, thank you, Tim. It's thank nice you. to be here. Thank you for joining us today. So, um, Pete, what we're going to do today is, well, first of all, we're going to talk about this um, podcast thing you're doing. Is this your first podcast? No. No. You've been on some others. I've been on one other for the Carolinas. Ah, that's right. Okay, perfect. So you're a little bit comfortable with the setting then? No? Maybe? Yeah, it's fine. I was just wondering, are you nervous? Do you like that question? You know, I kept getting that question from the board members when I was going to have to do my acceptance speech, and I don't like that question, so don't ask it again. <laughs> Moving right along. We're going to hit him with some hard questions today. All right, Pete. When did you join the Carolinas? In 1980. 1980. All right, we're going to circle back to that. So let's go um, kind of a little bit of a standard process here with me. Um, I like to let everybody know where our guests are from. So currently, you are the director of agronomy. Is that correct? That's correct. At Grandfather Golf and Country Club? Yes. And where is that located? That is located in Linville, North Carolina. So for those folks from maybe Australia or England who don't know where Linville, North Carolina is, what are we, about an hour, hour and a half north of Charlotte? Is that fair? Hour and a half. Closer to Asheville? Uh, it's about an hour to Asheville. Okay. And, and to, to the Michigan fans out there, you know, it's about 30 minutes south of Boone and App State. Oh, um, moving right along. Uh, yeah, seeing as how they just beat Ohio State, I guess we got to kind of give them some love here. But uh, what? It, it, where'd you grow up? Let's go there. Well, I was born originally in New Jersey. You and Chuck Connolly, huh? And my family, when I was six years old, Followed my grandparents to Florida, and we moved to Florida. And I grew up in on the west coast of Florida all the way through high school until I went into the service. And the service being the Navy? Yes. So you enlisted right out of high school? No, it was about a year out of after high school. How long did you serve in the Navy? Two and a half years. Well, I think we ought to just take a moment and thank you for your service to God and country. Well, thank you. As an Army brat, um, got a lot of respect for those who are willing to serve our country. means a lot. Well, it meant a lot to me as, you know, the Vietnam War was going on at that time. And my recruiter said that we take the bed and the kitchen with us. You don't have to carry it. And I said, where do I sign? Mm. Did you get to travel to some really neat places? I was all over the um, Mediterranean. Oh, my gosh. My, you know, some of my favorite places there was I, w I went to Corfu and Rhodes, Greece, which were small islands off the coast of Greece, which was really awesome. 
and I went to France. And now, were you on a ship? Yes, I was on an aircraft carrier. Oh wow! Yeah, that's amazing. The small towns, as they call it, or mobile community. Well. Let's just say that we were a fighting machine. There was 5,000 men on board. That's just amazing. Yeah. 5,000 people that have to be fed three times a day as a minimum. Four times a day. Four times a day. Well, the ship runs when we're at sea 24-7. So they would have to, they had a meal that was called mid-rats, which was like from 11 to 12 o'clock at night for the guys that were working all night. Because you had different shifts to make sure that oh, everybody's yeah. like a factory almost. Oh, yeah. First, second, and third shift, got to have somebody going. Yeah. All right. So we left the Navy. Then what did we do? Well, then I um, went back to Florida, and I started working on golf courses in 1974. As just a, a worker on the crew, I worked building two golf courses in Florida, And I worked on a third golf course down there when Didi and I moved to North Carolina. Okay. So three golf courses in Florida. Didn't you have a stint in Georgia at some point in there too? Well, when we moved to North Carolina in 1977. Oh, okay. North Carolina. Where'd you go there? Well, we didn't really know where we were going. We, We put our finger on a map. That's right. And... We put our finger on a map, and it was actually Lexington, North Carolina. And at the time in 1977, Lexington was still a pretty small town. And I told Didi, I said, you know, we're going to have trouble finding work here, so let's keep going up the road. And we went up the road to Greensboro. Greensboro. Yeah. And you landed at what course there? I was at Forest Oaks Country Club in in Greensboro. You guys hosted a tour event there, didn't you? Yes. Which one? The Greater Greensboro Open. How many of those did you do? <clears throat> well, just a little background history that I always think is, is pretty cool. That's is, what we're here for. Is I was the 25th man on a 25-man crew when I was hired at, okay. at Four Soaks in 1977 in July. And I worked for... And, you know, this is for the younger guys out there. If you want to understand what is necessary to go through is in 1978, a very good friend of mine, and he was kind of my mentor, Jim Ganley, came as a superintendent. And I worked for Jim for two years. And the first year Jim was there, I was making $3.25 an hour. And I made seventeen thousand five hundred dollars that year, so you can imagine the hours that I was working. So the next year, the assistant that was there when Jim came there left and went into the insurance business or something. And Jim asked me. He said, "Do you want to be my assistant?" And I said, "Yes, sir, I do." And he said, "All right, I'll start you out at a salary of twelve thousand five hundred dollars a year." And I said, perfect. And I had a goal, and I wanted to become a superintendent, so I did what I had to do to get there. And 
1980, um, the Atlanta Athletic Club was going to have the 1982 PGA Championship. And Jim interviewed for the job that was open, and he got the job. And in 1980, um, the ownership of Four Stokes hired me as the golf course superintendent, and I ran six tournaments there from 1980 through 85. Who were some of your favorite players? Did you get to interact with any of them? Oh, yeah. There I were think, some great guys on tour then. You know, and, and the cool thing about it was with the tournament back then, it was before the tour was exempt. Okay. So the whole time that I was at Four Stokes, everybody that was on the PGA Tour – of name, with the exception of Arnold Palmer, who was at the age where he was starting to retire, and he was also um, very involved in the senior tour. So he didn't come. And Jack Nicholas always went to Augusta the week before the Masters, because we were always the week before the Masters. And he would always go down there and practice. So everybody else that was part of the tour back then played and you know some of my favorites were fuzzy zoller fuzzy always wanted to know where was the best place to fish so i'd always have to get him in the truck and take him and show him the the pond where the bass were the best at that's great um lee trevino was hilarious you know the stories you hear about him it was even the same way with the tour players in the, in the men's locker room. Lee would have five or six guys sitting around him in the men's locker room telling stories, and everybody was listening and laughing, and he was, he was quite a character. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was fun with the guys that were then, you know, big time back then. It, it was a lot of fun to be involved with the, the, the tournament when Lanny Watkins sure. won the Greater Greensboro Open, being a local boy. That was fun. I think that probably one of my favorite stories and one of the most popular players that was ever there, and this was in – you guys might have to correct me if you want to go back and look at the, the records, but I think it was either in 78 – or 79, Seve Ballesteros. Oh, wow. A young, you know, good-looking Spaniard was playing in the tournament, and I was following. He was playing on the final day in the final group, and the 13th hole was a dog leg to the left, par five, that Seve tried to hit the green in two, and he missed it to the left, and the rough was pretty deep, and he tried to hit one of those Phil Mickelson flop shots on the, from the left of the green. Well, to the right of the green is the clubhouse and the swimming pool, and he was going to hit this big flop shot onto the green, and he bladed the ball. Oof. And it got to be about five feet up in the air, and this baby was headed towards the swimming pool. It was going to be in the swimming pool out of play. And... It was a line shot that dead centered the flagpole and dropped down a foot next to the hole, and he tapped it in for birdie and went on to win the tournament. <laughs> and that was his first PGA Tour win on the American Tour. And you're sitting there watching it. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's and, an amazing piece right there. You know, there's a lot of times where it play comes into it. The year that Lanny won the tournament, 
he was playing in the final group, and they were playing on the 10th hole. And he was playing, I can't remember who the third guy was. I think Craig Stadler was in the group. They were playing a threesome. And Craig and the other guy had hit the green and had a chance to make birdie. And Lanny Watkins airmailed the green. And it was coming right down at a woman that was sitting in an old-style lawn chair. And she jumped out of the chair. The ball hit in a chair, bounced back on the green to about three feet. And Lanny made the putt for birdie. And he went on to win the tournament. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. So, um, why would you leave that? Money. Money. Y'all couldn't see the paper signal. Young, aggressive, superintendent, under 30, full-time, following the dream. Fair statement? Yeah. And were you married at the time? Had you been married yet? When did you get married? Yeah, Yeah, Didi and I got married in January 7th of 1978. So in Greensboro? In Greensboro, yeah. But y'all had met in Florida? Yes. Okay. So she had, how long, did you know her when you were in the Navy? No. Okay. So after the Navy, meet your... The love of your life, who you've been married to, how long now? Well, we got married in 78. I think next year will be 45 years. Isn't that something? That's amazing. Congratulations. What's amazing is that she would put up with me in this business for that long. (laughs) Well, from what I understand, the young Pete, for sure. The older Pete, everybody loves. But um, (laughs) uh, So, okay, so 86 then, you find some money somewhere else. Where would we go? Or was it 87. No, I left um, Forest Oaks in the, the fall of 85. Okay. And I had Dee Dee and two young children. And I said, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to go into a lot of details on where or why, but I wasn't making as much money in 85 after running five tournaments as what Jim was making when he left in 1980 mm. after running two tournaments. How many times have we heard that story? So I said, you know, well, I'm going to put my faith in God and something better is going to come along. And I did several interviews, went to Florida and a couple other places. And some places said, well, you're overqualified and this and that. And I went to, um, actually, they were getting ready to start um, Wade Hampton. Okay. And I interviewed at Wade Hampton. And then I went down and I interviewed with a developer and Pete and PB Dye in Atlanta, Georgia for a job down there. And to make a long story short, they hired me as a construction and a golf course superintendent at $40,000 a year more than I was making when I left Forest Oaks. And at the time, um, my wife was pretty happy. I don't know how happy she was with having to move to Atlanta. But um, we had been there for about a month, and Wade Hampton called me and asked me if I was interested in coming to be the construction and the golf course superintendent at Wade Hampton. And I told them, if you had called 31 days ago, would have been perfect, but I've taken a job now, and I feel obligated to fulfill my position with the club that I took this opportunity with, and so that's where that went. Wow. Okay. So now we've moved to Atlanta, 
just such a lovely place to raise a family, I'm sure. Um, how long were we in Atlanta? Four years we, we were in Atlanta. We are two and a half years building the golf course, and then I was a superintendent on the golf course for about a year and a half after it opened. And then we took another stop somewhere else. Right. And then we ended up at Grandfather? Yes. And that would have been 1984? No, I... Oh, no, 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 94. I'm a decade off. No, I started at Grandfather in 1992. 92, okay, sorry. I'll tell you a cool little story about that that um, you just never know is Steve Sheets and I were our good friends, and in 1982, when I was at Forest Oaks, I called Steve one day, and I said, Steve, I was wondering if you could help me out, and he said, sure, what can I do? And I said... I would like to um, come up with my assistants and play your golf course. And then I was wondering if you could get me on Grandfather Golf and Country Club to play. And he said, I'll see what I could do. But he, he did. He got me on Linville Ridge, and then we went and played Grandfather in the afternoon. And I drove across the spillway at the big lake and looking up at the uh, grandfather mountain and the swinging bridge and everything i said man this is just unbelievable and i'm gonna cut it a little bit short here but i went home that night and i told Didi, and this was in 1982 okay i said Didi, you won't believe it and she said what's that and i said i have seen it and she said you've seen what and i said i have seen the place i would love to be the golf course superintendent at and almost 10 years to the day, grandfather called me up and asked me if I was interested in being the superintendent. And I think I could have run up there faster than the truck could get me there. But um, the unique thing about it for me was that I interviewed for the job and I was the only person that they interviewed and they hired me. And I guess that's about 31 years ago. Wow. So, for all the youngsters around, okay, the guys that you work with, how did you communicate with people back then, Pete? How did you even find these opportunities? How different was the world? I mean, we're talking like answering machines, like home messages, right? Like, Well, I mean, you know, when, when first thing when a two-way radio. Okay came into existence man what a game changer that was okay you know was, we didn't have cell phones and oh. you know you want somebody to do something you had to go find them and there was a lot of time wasted you know and now we, we still use two-way radio somewhat but like my superintendent he uses the iphone and he's got everybody on the crew they've got a phone and hey you need to go and do this, or you need to go and do that. And the amount of time that it saves is just unbelievable. And, you know, I worked for some really old-time superintendents when I was in Florida at what's called Prestancia now. It used to be called, when we built it, it was called Country Club of Sarasota. I worked for an old superintendent, and we were growing in a new golf course, and I needed to catch up with him to see what he wanted me to do next. And so he was driving a truck 
across fairways and stuff. So I was in my cart and I drove up to him, you know, chasing him down. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I needed to find out what you wanted me to do. So I was trying to catch up to you. And he said, well, I told you guys not to drive across the fairway like that. And I said, well, you were doing it. And this was part of my philosophy when I started out. He said, well, don't do as I do, do as I say. So, I mean, for the early part of my career, that was, you know, part of the way that I managed. But it was, it was um, not really the person that I wanted to be. I think that, you know, to have a crew that is a good crew and functioning well, you know, you should be able to have some fun. And, you know, the, the respect is what you're looking for. So if you respect them, they'll respect you. And once I learned that, you know, it was a lot better environment to work in. And the amount of work that we got done um, seemed to go up. So <clears throat> this crew that you've got now at Grandfather varies in size i'm assuming seasonally like you keep a few when you're closed right and then during the growing season you add another 25 maybe well we have um currently we have 12 full-time people okay and then we have about four guys that are what we call seasonal okay that um you know it used to be they got laid off every winter now it's you can't really lay off people and bring them back anymore you have to let them go so to speak and then they have to go and sign up for unemployment or whatever, and then you, you rehire them back in the um, spring. And then we also have um, 15 Hispanic people. And that's on the H2B program? Yes. Have you been lucky enough to get some of the same folks back? Several times. I think that, uh, you know, the hardest times was um, during COVID. Yeah. And there was, you know, they were a lot stricter with the – number of h2b workers and the timing that they got here um this year we yeah, this past year we got them on time um last year you know we didn't get half of the crew until like the middle of july mm. which you know that puts a lot of stress on a crew when you're seven or eight men down from what you need to do the job so um as part of the presidency then you get a chance to go to National Golf Day this year, huh, in D.C., so you can tell all the legislators how much it means to you, that program. Wow, I just found that out. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we didn't go over your travel schedule this morning, did I, we? No, we didn't do that yet. But um, I, I, I have figured that there's going to be more inclusive this year than what it's been in the last few years on the board and – what an honor that has been to, you know, be on the board and, and work with the different guys and different presidents that I've been blessed to work with. So let's let's share that a little bit with everybody. Pete is unique in that this is his, I guess, second uh, stint of service on the board for the Carolinas, right? So when was your first one? Tell everybody out there. I can't remember. <laughs> we were looking up on the board earlier. I think it was like in 89... So was it that I went on the board? Okay, and then through your hiring grandfather when you got too busy, probably. Um, 
or did you just serve two terms? Yeah, I served and I was done. That was two enough. Two years, yeah. Two years. So then you came back on four years ago, five years ago? I thought it was like 10 is what, <laughs> what it feels like. <laughs> I think it was five years ago. So we're trying to fast track you because we got to add the two for previous time served in, right? <laughs> well, you know, which I thought was a very good idea. You know, basically when we had COVID the first year, um, we stayed with the board for um, the second year, and basically everybody stayed the same. And for some of us to um, stay the same, we had to go on as our as another two year term, which I did. And you know, at the end of that two year term, I was asked to be secretary treasurer, which is you know kind of the the fast track to get to be. Um, the president with you being secretary, treasurer, and then vice president and president. Tell everybody, um, what's one of your favorite stories from being on the board? Oh, wow. I don't know. I guess um, it's not one of my favorite stories, but the, the unique one was when I was compared to the, um, what was that guy called? The bomber? The Unabomber. The Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, it was it was very cold, uh, and I had on a black hoodie and sunglasses. And they took a picture of me, and then they post on the the book, the Carolinas Magazine, that that um, we had our own Ted Kaczynski, and so I did threaten Trent with the the possibility that anything like that might ever happen again, I would sue him. So. <laughs> I don't think he's gone under litigation yet for anything he's put in there. He's been close a couple times. All right, what about from your uh, from your career? Tell us a favorite story you got from from your time as a superintendent. What stands out? I don't know. I guess you know the eighty two story, and then getting hired in ninety two. You know. Um, I've always said that if I could have served as the superintendent at Grandfather Golf and Country Club for five years, I would have been happy. And lo and behold, you know, here I am 31 years later and still there. Um, so, I mean, there's so many stories. I think one of my favorites, and I guess for this podcast, I would have to clean it up a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. But... Um, I'd been at grandfather for about a week and there was a boy on a crew. His name was Larry and we all called him Gab because he, he talked all the time and he came up and he got right in my face. And like I said, I'm going to have to clean this up a little bit for, <laughs> but he got right in my face and he said, if you mess with me, I'll kill you and your whole damn family. Mm. And he was like three inches away from my face. Well, I didn't really know anybody that well after only being there for a week. And so I, um, I backed away and I started to laugh. And Larry says, what the hell's so funny? And I said, well, Larry, to be honest with you, I really don't even know how many people work for me because... Larry is Gab, Steve the mechanic was Moon, and 
Scotty was boo-boo and Ray was yogi. And I said, I really don't know how many people I have working for me. And on top of that, I really don't know how many people of them you're related to. I need to get a bigger gun. <laughs> and he stepped back and laughed like crazy. But the truth of the matter being uh, that seven of him, him and seven of, or six of his brothers were on the crew. <laughs> and then his father-in-law was on the crew, um, several cousins. So I made a good decision, but um, they're marvelous men. There's, um, I can't really say exactly, but there's seven or eight guys that are on the crew that were working there before me that are still working for me. Wow. So, I mean, it's, you know, they're, the mountain guys are just great workers, and we have a lot of fun doing what we do. My idea of golf is it's kind of like a chess game, and what we do is we set up the board for all the pieces to move around on. So if we're involved in a game, we should be able to have some fun, and we do. So I remember you telling me one time that – I think it was during the interview at Grandfather. I can't remember how the question was phrased. But somebody asked you why you should be the superintendent there. And you gave them the answer about tournament condition at all times, if I'm not mistaken. Does that ring a bell? Well, they asked me what was my vision. That's it. For Grandfather Golf and Country Club. And I told them that my vision for Grandfather Golf and Country Club is that the PGA Tour could call us on any week and say, look, we've got a problem with where we're supposed to play. Can we play your golf course? And I told them that that was my goal was to be in what I considered, and I knew a little bit about it, having been involved with the Greater Greensboro Open for almost 10 years, that it should be in PGA Tour tournament condition Every day. Every day. Every day. The days that I've played it, I would say that. In fact, having played in a couple pro-ams, you might even have one-upped. But that's just... Thank you. Yes. Um, you play a little bit of golf. Well, I play a little bit now. You love golf, though. Oh, absolutely. Where are some places that you've played that are just standouts? Do you ever play over... In Europe at all? No. No golf? Um, I mean, I would like to, you know, if I live long enough, go over there sometime. But, you know, um, I had a very good friend, um, Mr. Hicks, that he and I were running tournaments. I was on the PGA Tour, and he was on the LPGA Tour at Willow Creek um, years ago. And Hal went to Florida when he, he left Willow Creek, and he was at Seminole. Mm. And Seminole is definitely in my top three. Um, to play and walk across the Hogan Bridge with golf clubs in your hand is, um, you know, really quite special um, to get the opportunity to do that. Um, I got the opportunity to play Oakmont, which, um, man, that golf course is hard. That's what everybody says. It's hard. <laughs> Trust me. This, this tabletop, you'd have to shave it down a little bit to get the green <laughs> speed right. 
And, you know, obviously my son worked uh, in the pro shop as an assistant at Wingfoot, and I got the opportunity to play the um, tournament course at Wingfoot. Mm. And a, a neat story that I had playing with those guys is on 18, I hit driver um, rescue to about 18 feet, and I walked up to, to putt for the birdie, and I turned around, and this was like two or three years after Phil Mickelson's double bogey on 18 to lose the open, and I, I turned around, and I looked at my son, and I said, what do you think Mickelson would have paid for this putt? <laughs> and, <laughs> but, you know, everybody knows Phil, and that's Phil. Yeah, that was his best chance, everybody seems to think. Yeah. He could have had it. <clears throat> but um, I got to play, you know, out in the desert at PGA West. And, you know, that was a lot of fun, especially um, building a golf course with Pete and PB. Um, that was really um, pretty cool. So after I met Hal Hicks, and I got to hang out with him a couple times, get toured around Seminole, you know, old Harmon house that he lived in right there why do i feel like you two would have been good buddies 30 40 years ago well one thing that i really like about it is 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 every once in a while our pro would have some members that would ask if he could get them on Seminole, and he couldn't do it and i could mm -hmm. but um yeah hal and i were were very good friends and you know, he and I have swapped out several times where he would bring some of his buddies up and play um, grandfather and some of the other golf courses around, and then he would, you know, let me come down and play at Seminole. That's an amazing experience. I got the opportunity to play with him the first time, and I remember I think it was on five or six. It's just he and I walking up the fairway together. And we were talking about the greens because they were firm and fast. And, oh, yeah. And, and I had already commented about what do you have to do to make the ball stop on this golf course. Like, it just kept going. didn't matter what I did. It just wouldn't come to rest. And he got into a conversation about how they were going to redo the greens when they closed down that summer. And I said, how old are they? He said, oh, I think that this is their fifth season. And this was champion 15 years ago or something, mm -hmm. 10, 15 I said, well, well, man, they're perfect. Why would you do that? He said, well, we're going to get some new greens. I said, but what's wrong with these? And he just stopped, just quit walking. He made me stop, and he looked at me. He said, let me ask you something, Tim. You drink Coca-Cola? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you like a brand-new Coca-Cola in a bottle, or do you like an old Coca-Cola? <laughs> I said, I understand what you said now, young man. He said, we're not going to have any problems. We're going to have new grass. Every so many years. It just blew me away, the, the, the procedures down there. Well, the, the unique thing about Florida is they're exactly opposite of like where I am is we're closed in the winter and then we're open all season and their slow time is in the summer, which I can't blame them because if you've ever played golf in Florida with it 98 degrees and 115% humidity, can you have 115% humidity? I don't know, but if you've been it to felt Buford, like you it. can. Yes. Yeah. Yes. As soon as you get out of your car, you're muggy. Yes, I get yeah. that. All right, so share with everybody some of your expectations as president of the Carolinas. What are you going to get done this year? 
you told me I could surprise you with these questions. Well, I think the biggest thing is for me is, you know, um, geez, I love this association. I, I love all the guys in the Carolinas and what a great group of people that it is. So obviously my number one goal is not to disappoint anybody. It's so like I said when I was doing my little choked up speech at the um, conference and show is I have a, my phone numbers listed and I have an email. If you have something that you're interested in or an idea, we'd love to hear it. I'm not saying that we're going to do it, but we would love to hear it and evaluate it as a group and as a board. Um, so I think that, you know, the biggest thing for me is I don't want to disappoint anybody. And it's like I was talking with um, Kim and Melissa this morning is my goal is, is not to stay the same, but to go forward. I think that, you know, it's the same thing on the golf course. If you're staying the same, you're going backwards. And my goal is, is to, to go forward. Um, I told Tim and the girls that I wanted to come down here once a month and spend some time with them. And it's not because I have any doubt in their abilities. It's just that maybe I could learn something and just, you know, keep up more with um, what's going on and what we can do to make our association what I feel already is the, the best association that there is in the country. I'm not talking about the National Association, but just as far as different states. And so, you know, the big thing for me is I'm excited. I'm honored to, you know, get to be the president and follow some of the great guys. I was looking at the, the thing on the wall and, as old as I am, I actually knew guys that were presidents back in the, the early 60s and, and the 70s, and that's pretty neat. Um, so, I mean, you know, I just want to serve you all honorably and do the best job that I can, and we would love to have your input on anything that you think is important that we might be missing or that we might can add. We would love to hear it. Appropriate time for some applause. How about that? <laughs> uh, the buttons on this thing are amazing. So um, I'm, I'm just going to keep jump, jumping all over the place. Conference and show this past one that we just went to where you were elected president. Compare that to the first conference you ever attended. Oh, my. You know, I don't want to take anything away from from – Clemson University, but I think that the, the first one that I came to um, was in Clemson, and it was in the early 80s, and wow, it's, I mean, you know, it was back then, you know, we were, we were like, man, this is great, you know, the, the classes were good, but, um, you know, the big difference is, and where we've been able to go you know, today in 2023 and with the conference that we just had and everything is um, the love and everything that we get from our vendors and distributors and all of those people, um, you know, they're, 
they're a big part of why we are as big as we are and what a great show it is for all of you guys and girls out there that, you know, want to come to the show and get some more education or look at a new piece of equipment or maybe a new idea that you can get with talking with these people is pretty special. And, you know, I think that back in the early 80s, the number of vendors that were involved is was nothing like it is now. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the big names were there and they're still there today. That's the important thing. I mean, we've got plaques hanging on the wall from when this association was opened with some vendors that have supported us from day one, like STI. That's right. You know, TSP, yep. as soon as they came into business, John Deere, as soon as they came into function, when Revels opened up their own distributor, I mean, we've been blessed there to have such constant support. I think one of the neat things, too, is the education and how it's progressed. Because I think the ability to choose your class is what I, I – humbly i feel like sets us apart um the other chapters sometimes just run tracks of education or sessions that everybody sits through the same thing but we're giving you four distinct opportunities and i just think that makes such a difference for you guys well i think that that probably is you know for us as superintendents other than the camaraderie that we get to have at a conference and show like that is the education that's available to us and you know we're very blessed to you know have the professors at Clemson University and NC State and Horry Georgetown and you know even going outside of our area and you know the the help that different universities will give us if we have questions and help us to get answers and, you know, I think that that's a, a big part of it. Uh, and we certainly are blessed to have, you know, several great universities in our area that are into turf grass and are willing to be a part of what we do with a conference and show like that. Well, and how neat was it to see the number of students that we had this year? I can't ever remember that many. Well, I mean, to me, you know, that's the, the lifeblood. Yeah of our industry and you know i was really excited to um, see all the kids from nc state and from clemson and from hoary georgetown that were there and you know i was really excited about the enthusiasm that they had just in being there and i i think that we're in a good place right now um you know thankfully we've come out of covid and our office and staff and the boards just did what I feel like is a marvelous job when we were going through the COVID issue and still being able to provide y'all with some education and different opportunities like that was, was really quite out front of everything. It's crazy. Um, that whole process felt like, felt like sometimes we were thinking of problems that were about to happen and then they did. And it was really just, it's an interesting, scary time all around, to say the least. But um, what have we um, not talked about today that you might have had on your mind that said, man, I'm doing a podcast. I'm excited about this. I got to tell the world. Well, first of all, I didn't know I was doing a podcast <laughs> until I got here. Thank you, Tim, for the, the preparation and everything. So you got the script like all of our previous guests. 
What script? Exactly. <laughs> I, I, where's the script? The one over here I'm staring at. Oh, you've got the script. <laughs> yeah, I got some scribbles. I don't know. What was the question? Um, exactly. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, no, what is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you think is important for maybe some youngsters or, you know, we could go with the standard. Um, one of the things that I was going to ask you about was the importance of mentoring the up-and-coming generation. Well, I think that, that that's huge. Um, you know, my, my current superintendent is 25 years old. Wow. Our senior assistant is 22, and two of our second assistants um, actually served as summer intern this year but had graduated at the fall. And, you know, to have young people like that that are, are motivated, especially when it comes to um, pushing a walk spreader, which I don't do anymore, <laughs> is, is pretty exciting to me. I think that the one thing that I, throughout my entire career that I've always told young people coming up in the industry is if you ever get the opportunity to work or to build a golf course where you understand everything that you don't see, then when you get to be a, a superintendent and they say, they come up to you and they say, well, we want to rebuild greens. It's not a slap in the face to you. You say, oh, okay, that'd be great. I've done it before. So I think that, you know, if you ever get the opportunity as a, a young and upcoming person in this industry and you get a chance to, to do a construction job, um, it's a great benefit to you for your entire career because, you know, for, for me in my career, building a golf course with the dives and then building another golf course and, and working on a couple as a, a worker, I understood what was under, under the ground and how important that was to how good the turf was on the golf course. What's a piece of advice you'd give the 27-year-old Pete Gurdon? first got hired as a superintendent i think that you know and I, i've said this a lot to a lot of young people unfortunately in going to college and turf grass school and everything is that they don't teach you how to deal with people and my wife can attest to this. Uh, the first year that i was, took the job at forest oaks was in january of 1980 like I said, and in three months, NBC was going to turn on the TV cameras on the Greater Greensboro Open. Well, as a 27-year-old, for me anyway, that was a lot of pressure. And I didn't think that there was anybody that could do the job as good as I could do, so I tried to do it all, which almost killed me. And after the tournament was over, I went home and I told my wife, I said, Didi, one of two things has to happen. Either I need to find something else to do or I need to learn how to manage men. And when I came to the realization that, that what our industry was was dealing with people and at the same time I should say learn how to deal with, um, with women also on a golf course is that when I came to that realization the job became much easier because I think that one of my favorite sayings is, is as a golf course superintendent, 
you're only as good as the crew that works for you, but they're only as good as you lead them. So it's a two-way street that goes back and forth all the time. And ever since that day, a long time ago in Greensboro, I've learned how to deal with people on the crew and how to have some fun, like I said earlier, and get the job done. I can relate to those stresses growing up as an Army brat, just seeing that example and then moving on and having a retail experience managing people twice your age and you, the younger one, having the higher expectations, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, the, the people skills. Finally had to have somebody come up to me one day, look me in the eye and say some choice words and, you know, somebody that I trusted, and then we followed it up with a conversation later, and he just, look, man, ain't nobody dying here. Relax. We're going to be fine. You know? It's okay. You know, this isn't the medical industry. This isn't something that we need to be stressed about. And I think that's one of the things here. And so when I hear you say that you want to come down once a month, I mean, I think the best thing we can do is just to interact and to bring everybody and sit at the table and catch up, make sure that we're all on the same page and open that dialogue. Because I'll tell you, they don't get a lot of visitors. Um, And as much as they hear the appreciation it's a little different when it's felt in person, you know? Well, it's, you know, I, I, I've always said that, to, you know, the, the board gets mad at me because every time we have a board meeting and we're talking about budgets, I want to give you guys more money. And <laughs> they kind of yell at me, shut up. But, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to have you, Tim, and Melissa and Angie and Kim here and what a marvelous job that y'all do, and we certainly appreciate it. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up. We're getting close to the end. I guess we're going to go with the, the original question from Big Al that, that used to wrap up every episode. Um, Pete, what was the first car you ever drove? The first car that I ever drove, I, I told my dad, and my parents were, were kind of strict. Yeah, okay. And... He said, well, if you want to get a car, get a job and buy one. And so I was talking to my uncle, and my uncle had an old 58 Ford that was three-toned. It was blue and white and rust color, and the rust color was actually rust. And I drove that car through my whole senior year, so I wasn't one of the highfalutin guys out there the girls weren't exactly um excited about having to jump in that old galaxy ford with me but that was my first car and that was in 1970 that's awesome all right pete well look we've taken up a lot of your time today um we as an association appreciate your service this time around um and i can thank you for the previous moment as well um But we look forward to working with you this year. And I think the best thing that you've said as president that I don't ever remember anybody saying, I know they feel it, but um, my cell phone and my email's there if you need me. Just reach out. Absolutely. Always I'm there and would love to hear from you guys. All right. Well, Pete, anything else you want to tell the world? Hi. And with that, folks, we'll see you next time. Bye.